This morning I'd uh, like to turn your attention to two passages of Scripture. Uh, one of them, of course, is our text this morning from Acts chapter 19. That would be verses 8 through 10. And then at the same time, I would like for you also to um, turn to Amos chapter 8 in the Old Testament. Amos chapter 8 verses 11 and 12 as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, we want to also focus upon a, a, a very important issue in the church today, and that is the hearing of the word of the Lord, as you'll see it uh, come up in our text today. So uh, what I'd like for us to do this morning is to actually read these five verses. First of all, in the book of Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And then Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. They will be up here behind me so that you can read them uh, with me together. And as we do every Sunday, if you're able to stand, please stand with me as we read God's Word. It is certainly my desire, my prayer, that um, the study today would, uh, would truly impact our hearts and our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 19, beginning with verse 8. Let's read together. Let's read aloud. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Amos 8, verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. You all may be seated. I was just about to remind you, we just prayed a little while ago, so we didn't have to pray again. Jay Leno does a man-on-the-street interview periodically on his late-night show. And one evening, he collared some young people to ask them questions about the Bible. Can you name one of the Ten Commandments, he asked, to college-aged women? One of them replied, freedom of speech? Leno said to the other, complete, complete this sentence. Let he who is without sin, and her response was, have a good time. Jay then turned to a young man and asked him, who according to the Bible was eaten by a whale? And the confident answer was, Pinocchio. These young people 
We're more than likely from that segment of today's society that have either never stepped into a church Sunday school class or even into a church period, or who have attended some type of church that does not have the Word of God at the center of its life or or consider it the highest priority of its congregation's growth, especially the spiritual growth of their young people. I was reading an article uh, recently that had this statement. And I quote, We need to teach our children God's Word early, lest they have to get it later. Now, listen to that again. We need to teach our children God's Word early, lest they have to get it later. Now, what was meant by that statement in this article had to do with the fact that in most states in our nation, Public schools do not allow students to read the Bible, but many state penal codes require said states to provide a Bible for every inmate. Do you understand now the statement? What's interesting is I finally realized that that was speaking about the Illinois uh, state itself. We know what's going on in Illinois today, I think. Some of us do anyway. But it's been said, and listen carefully, it's been said, what we believe determines what we become, which determines what we beget. And what we listen to will determine what we believe. Now another trend in today's church that is harmful, if not dangerous, to the biblical and spiritual growth of both congregant and the curious, is the active promotion by some churches to be distinct from other churches by just reading their various slogans. We do church differently. Or a new way of doing church. Where entertainment replaces exposition, where performances replace preaching, where drama replaces doctrine and theatrics replaces theology, and where the technical is more important than the teaching, or may I also say where the technique is more important than teaching, teaching the Word of God. Some of those things are not all that bad, but if that becomes the most important thing to do and you put the Word of God aside, then it's dangerous. You see, why do we have to say, well, we do church differently? Why do we have to say we're a new way of doing church? If God has called us to be one body, we need to have the standard, which which is the Word of God, as the standard for our rule and our practice. So when we say we do church differently, in most cases, the Word of God is not primary. So all this brings to mind the words of the Apostle Paul, who said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-5, through 5, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, 
and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the reality of that statement is that that power and that demonstration came through his preaching of the Word of God. And a statement comes out in, in, in the history of the church. When the Word of God was primary and was necessary, and the pulpit was the place that represented the very pro, uh, uh, pro, proclamation and declaration of God's Word. A statement that comes out of the times and, and, and days of, of revival, as it were. But it is, as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. I have no problem with the pulpit here. As a matter of fact, I want the pulpit here because it represents the fact that the Word of God needs to be preached. And it needs to be central to the very life of the church. Even today, you know, architecture, as it were, or whatever, it, it, it seems that it's better, let's move this out of the way because we can't do a lot of stuff with, with the pulpit in the way. No, the pulpit has to be here. Because God's Word has to be here. The prophecy of Amos that we read earlier speaks loudly to our day and the time for true expository preaching and teaching of God's Word. And, and it's interesting, but that's a rarity now. And what is meant then? When I say expository preaching and teaching. Well, in his book, Famine in the Land, Stephen J. Lawson gives this simple but profound definition of expository preaching and teaching. He says, it is the man of God, and I want to read it a couple of times, but I want it to kind of stick to your heart and mind. It is the man of God opening the Word of God and expounding its truth so that the voice of God may be heard, the glory of God seen, and the will of God obeyed. That is what expository preaching and teaching is. Now I'll read it to you again. It is the man of God opening the Word of God and expounding its truths so that the voice of God may be heard, the glory of God seen, and the will of God obeyed. Expository preaching and teaching involves two things. Let me first of all say that to exposit means to reveal, to open up, to expose, as it were. But expository preaching and teaching involves two things. It involves explication and application. Explication and application. Explication is a real word, by the way, because my, uh, my spell check told me it was. But uh, explication, of course, we understand that comes from the word explain. So it explains, and then the second uh, part of expository preaching and teaching is application. So it is then the unfolding of the word of God's natural and true meaning, that's the explication, while making application to the life and experience of the listeners. So let's 
Keep that in mind as we apply this to the text that we have before us here today, which involves the ministry of Paul in the synagogue in Ephesus. And let me just say to you that the exposition of these three verses, and I I chose to do this this way today, just to exposit three verses for you, without going on, and see it being simple and not very long, because I've got a lot more after that. But I, I just want you to begin to see what it is to exposit this particular passage. Acts 19, verse 8, And he went, this is speaking of Paul, And he went into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, Paul had already spent a short time with some of the people from the Ephesian synagogue, having sowed seed. And we remember when we saw uh, Paul in Ephesus for the first time, that he wasn't there for a long time, but as he was there, he had people who asked him to stay uh, a, a good long while, and he said, I can't do that now, I need to press on, I need to go and do a few other things here and there, but... God willing, I'll come back. And He certainly does. But when He first came, He began to sow seed. Please keep this picture in mind. Paul began to sow seed, the seed of the Word of God. And then Aquila and Priscilla spent time there cultivating the soil. Spent time in that synagogue cultivating the soil among the people that were there, both Jew and Gentiles. Gentiles who came to hear God's Word. So Paul had sowed the seed, Aquila and Priscilla spent time cultivating the soil. Following that, then the person that we studied not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, Apollos, there had effectively ministered among the Jewish people in the synagogue. What was he doing? He was watering the seed. Paul sowed the seed, Aquila and Priscilla cultivated the soil. Apollos comes and he waters the seed, and so the time now was ripe for reaping. Now Paul comes back. And again, a door opens for Paul in this synagogue. This time for three months, and a period of time longer than usual for the apostle. Paul didn't spend a lot of time in some synagogues, mainly because they threw him out. And sometimes pretty quick. But now we see that he's there for three months. And and, and what we learn from this verse is not only that he uses his customary approach of reasoning which is to speak and and, and to reason with them, discuss with them the issues of the Scriptures concerning the Lord. But but we we see that Luke adds a word here, and what's added to that is the word persuading, that he was reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And so this added word persuading here means to speak convincingly with winning words. The persuasion of Paul was that he spoke with winning words. There wasn't a way that he was going to lose out because he was giving them the full counsel of God. But his great theme here was the kingdom of God. Now, the simple definition of the kingdom of God. For we need to understand what it was that Paul was presenting to them. The simple definition of the kingdom of God is that it is God's rule and God's reign and God's authority in the lives of believers. Now, if we sometimes hear the word kingdom, we think of a kingdom with a castle and and, uh, subjects uh, who serve the king in this particular kingdom. 
Now, to, that ex- to some extent, that may be true, but the idea here of God's kingdom, or the kingdom of God, is in fact the rule of God, the reign of God, the authority of God. That very idea then of God's kingdom was something that was envisioned even at man's creation. We could go all the way back to uh, the book of Genesis when the Lord crowned Adam. As he's preparing now his creation of man in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, when it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This was what God was giving to man to do. But it was God's rule, God's reign and authority over man to do this. At this particular point in time, man had been created by God in in the image of God and was still clean and pure from the day that he would be created. But we all know that the kingdom was ruined. The kingdom was ruined by the fall when man surrendered that dominion to Satan. And since that time, of course, Adam's descendants have been born as a consequence into the kingdom of darkness. And that includes us all, because the Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. From the day we were born. But the kingdom of God would be promised. And it would be promised time and time and time and time again. It wasn't that God was giving up on His rule and reign and authority over man, but He wanted to make it very clear that that kingdom would be promised in the Hebrew Scriptures and it would be promised for a very long time. And it was presented to Israel when when the only true king was born at Bethlehem, grew up and was announced by his forerunner and herald John the Baptist. And this king revealed himself in all his wisdom and all his love and power to Israel. But the kingdom as presented by Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And the kingdom for which we are to pray that it might come, as Jesus taught us that pattern of prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What do we say? Thy rule come, thy rule, thy reign be done. It is that same kingdom that will one day be manifest in glory and splendor at the coming of Messiah. It is that kingdom that will be set up on earth for a thousand years, and that rule, uh, or I should say, that will endure forever. That kingdom is centered in and upon the king. That kingdom is centered in and upon the king. So, going back to Paul in the synagogue, what is he preaching? He's preaching the kingdom of God, but who's at the center of the kingdom of God but the king himself? Jesus Christ. The one who was crucified at Calvary. The one bearing the mocking title on his cross in the languages of religion, rule, and reason. In Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, you can even throw Aramaic in there. But those were the, those were the languages of religion, rule, and reason. The Hebrew, and the Latin, and the Greek. The Hebrew, religion, the rule, Latin. The language of reason, the Greek. And above the cross was that title. John 19.19 says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, 
And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate believed, a lot of, believed and said a lot of things. A lot of it was wrong, but this one thing was right. He was indeed not only the king of the Jews, he was the king of all. And he was the one who spoke to Nicodemus concerning the kingdom when he said in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the rule or the reign or the authority of God. And he is the king who spoke of the kingdom that is today inward rather than outward. It is a kingdom that is inward rather than outward. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and he said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say here, see here, or see there. For indeed, Jesus said, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. The rule of God, the reign of God, the authority of God is within you. This is the kingdom and the king that Paul preached with persuasiveness and with power. This is the kingdom when he said, I I wanted to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the kingdom of God. And we can be sure that he presented that kingdom and that king in all the scope of God's word. Both old and new. Both the Old Testament and what was at that time beginning to be compiled as the New Testament. Because Paul didn't have the Bible as we have it today, completed in its Old and New uh, Testaments. He had the Old for sure. And out of that he certainly preached. And out of that he began to show them the kingdom of God. And out of that he began to show them the coming king. And that king being the Messiah of Israel, the anointed one of Israel, who had already come and died for the sins of men. And I know that he proclaimed it all to them. Because in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul would tell the Ephesian elders, For I have not shunned, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And even with the truth presented so clearly and confidently by Paul, the hardness of men's heart rose up in various synagogue attendees, and they willfully refused to believe the truth. But isn't that the case as it is today? Isn't that the case today that so many people hear, and you can convince them clearly They have no argument. They can't. Because of how God has substantiated His Word. So it's not an issue of not believing. It is an issue of not wanting to believe. It is an issue of the will. And notice verse 9 now of our text. But when some were hardened... And did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, which means that they, that they blasphemed the way before all the people. It means that they cursed the way 
before all the people that were in the synagogue. When some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, Paul departed from them and withdrew the disciples. Those who were true students of God's Word, those who were true students of, of Paul, those who were true students of what Paul was teaching them about Jesus. He withdrew them. And then it says, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. As soon as the unbelief of these Jews reached the level of cursing Christ, of cursing His followers, and of cursing the message of the Gospel, and I say that because... Each of those was called the way. Jesus Himself called Himself the way when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. I am the way. But even those who follow Jesus in this time, in this time frame, they weren't called the church as much as they were called the way, or followers of the way. So it just got shortened to be the way. So the followers were also considered as the way. But so was the message. Why? Because the message pointed the way. So in fact, if they were blaspheming and cursing at anything, they were cursing both, or I shouldn't say both, but at all of these things, they were cursing at Christ and His followers and the message of the gospel. So as soon as all of this is taking place, Paul would detach himself, he would separate himself and his disciples from that synagogue all in all, all, all together. He would just separate himself and them. And so a new meeting place was sought out, and lo and behold, they wound up in the school of a person named Tyrannus. Now that's a name for a teacher, Tyrannus. Because you see, the word Tyrannus literally mean, meant tyrant. Now, some of you remember your own teachers back when you were in school. I'm sure some of them seemed like tyrants. So we, we wonder if that was a nickname for this teacher. But uh, what we do know from the text is that this Tyrannus was indeed a teacher of some sort. Now, there are some who believe that Tyrannus was a Gentile. That's a, that's a Gentile name. But he was a Gentile who had probably a philosophical type of a school but had probably befriended Paul, or Paul befriended him, and so he allowed Paul to use uh, his, his particular school for, for his teaching at some given time of the day. Others believe that Tyrannus was actually a Gentile name for a Jewish believer who was probably, or possibly, a part of the, uh, the synagogue, and that uh, when uh, those uh, uh, followers of, of Paul were ousted, or at least left, the synagogue that uh, uh, he said, well, I've got a, a school and, and usually where there was a large Jewish population, they not only had a synagogue, but they probably had a school as well. So if he was Jewish, he would probably have had a Jewish school or a Hebrew school, as it were. Uh, we don't know that, but uh, that's neither here nor there because he was a teacher of some sort who ran and owned a, a lecture hall, because the word school is literally a lecture hall, and he, and he allowed Paul and his disciples the use of this hall when it wasn't being used. And I think it's interesting when it isn't being used. Now, some people would say that this is traditionally the time, uh, some, even some marginal notes in, in, in certain translations say that it was sometime between 11 and 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
that uh, Paul would be able to use that school daily. Now, you have to understand that from 11 a.m. to uh, 2 or 3 in the afternoon was actually the hottest time of the day. And uh, there was no air conditioning, of course, and, and who knows what uh, kind of comforts or lack of comforts they had in that school. But it lets you know one thing. You know, it didn't matter how hot it was in that place. They all got together and they did so for three or four hours with Paul on a daily basis to learn about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. So be thankful for the comfort you get. Because they didn't have them in those days. And maybe we can also say, think about when you're getting ready to criticize it for being too hot or too cold in here. You're not in here for only but a little bit, you know, hour and a half maybe at the most. Thank you. <laughs> it brings us to verse 10. And this continued for two years. Two years. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, in that verse is a phrase that you need to remember. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard, heard the word of the Lord Jesus. They heard the word. Here we are told that Paul ministered in Ephesus for two years. And yet we're told in the next chapter by Paul in in Acts chapter 20 verse 31. He says, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, we have to add the extra two months before those two years... The two months that he had been teaching in the synagogue, and then there's the two years that he mentions there in the in verse 10. But you need to understand this. It was customary to count a part of a unit of time as a whole. So his ministry was actually between somewhere between two and three years there in Ephesus. And uh, so what we need to understand about the way time is, 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 is figured out in, in that way. Uh, take, for example, how we ourselves deal with decades you know, periods of 10 years, a decade, you know. I used this example last night. Uh, uh, let's say a, an athlete, you know, begins his, his professional athletic career in 1969. 1969, uh, uh, he, he begins this, this career. Well, that was the part of the 60s because it was in 69. So there's a part of a decade there. And then he, he, he plays all the way through uh, the 70s, and then he plays all the way through the 80s. But in, in 1991, about two years into the night, you know, that the 90s, which is a decade, uh, about two years he's really tired of playing, and so he retires. What, are, what is the, spo- the sports writers going to say? They're going to say he was playing that sport for four decades. Now, we don't ever think 40 years? No. He started in 69, he finished in, in, in 91, but he was in 69, was a part of the 60s, so that was one decade, all of the 70s, all of the 80s, that was two more decades, and then a little bit a part of the 90s, that was the fourth decade, you see? So Paul wasn't exaggerating, he was just using a way that they counted the, the unit of time. Boy, I spent a lot of time doing that, I don't know why. Anyways, it took me decades to get through the explanation. Anyway. So from the text then, we learn some valuable lessons about Paul's policies dealing with the church and with missions. 
First of all, he established a thriving evangelistic church in a city, and then he encouraged his converts to get busy and to evangelize it. And not only the city, but in the the whole region that surrounded Ephesus, which would have been the region of Asia. Now the interesting thing is that Paul taught the Word of God. Now notice this. From this text, Paul taught the Word of God in Ephesus, and the Gospel had spread throughout all of Asia. Now, how did all of that happen? Paul couldn't reach the whole region by himself. He was in Ephesus. He said, I was here for three years. So how then did all this region hear the Word of the Lord? Paul writes a letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. This particular section of that letter, he says, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, which he counted himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. By the way, pastors and teachers there is really one uh, uh, grouping. It's not two different groupings, but one grouping. And the reason was, in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul was teaching the church in Ephesus on a daily basis. He was teaching them the Word of God, the Kingdom of God. He was teaching them about Jesus Christ. They were the ones who were doing the work of the ministry, going in and through the whole city of Ephesus, going out of the city of Ephesus into all of the surrounding regions. Because you see, healthy sheep reproduce. And how are they healthy? They're healthy because they're being fed the Word of God. So healthy sheep are reproducing, and we see that here with the people in Asia as they got saved, as they came to the knowledge of Christ. And we see the gospel message then spreading to places like Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, all of the uh, cities in that region of Asia, as God was working through His people. Consider it like a virus. As Christians come in contact with others, the others catch what the Christians have. And what a glorious thing it is, building people up and bringing them to newness of life in Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't ask this question in, 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 a, in a hard way, but I have to ask the question, do you remember when Christ saved you? Is it not still fresh in your heart what Jesus Christ did to take you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his, of his marvelous light? That should never be anything we put away in our hearts or minds. What Jesus Christ did for us. So listen. So all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and, and Greeks. So the exposition, you see, the exposition of these three verses was simple. But it brings us back to the thought of what needs to be heard and the importance of preaching and teaching the message of the gospel expositionally. And again, look at that last part of that verse. He heard the word 
of the Lord Jesus. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word. Why is all of this important? Why is it important? It is important because of what Paul tells the Roman church in Romans chapter 10. And I want you to look at the progression of what he tells them. For he says in Romans 10 verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. A Jew calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, God is rich toward that man or woman. A Gentile calls upon the Lord Jesus, God is rich, Christ is rich toward that person who calls upon the name of the Lord. But notice in verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation comes to that person who calls upon the name of the Lord. But then the questions arise. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? When you go out into the world, you're not going out into a world who already believe. The fact of the matter is, before you came to Christ, you didn't believe. You might have known about Jesus, but you didn't know Him, therefore you did not believe Him. Or have faith in Him. Or have trust in Him. How many people today go to church, but don't believe and trust in Jesus Christ? But they feel like maybe coming to church, that makes them feel good. But you have to believe. And trust. And have faith in the Lord. So the question is, how then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Oh, we haven't heard about Him. And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? You see the progression here? There's need, there's a message, there's a preacher, but the preacher has to be sent as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's reality, isn't it? They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. So then, and here's the key verse, So then, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. I want you to notice that it doesn't say faith comes by watching. By watching DVDs, by watching dramas, by watching... All of these can be good things. Faith doesn't come by the latest Christian CD and the artist who did it. The artist will be the first one to say, it's not me, it's the Lord. You need to come to and you need to hear His Word, not my songs. Do you understand where I'm going here? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it brings back to mind what Amos writes in his prophecy, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. How many people are, are doing that today? I believe this is prophecy coming through today. 
because the teaching of the Word of God is not primary in, the, in, in many churches today, which is a funny thing to say. If the Word of God is not primary in the church today, what is happening in that church? What is more important? I mean, folks, we are living in, a day, we are living in days of such a drought. A time, as Lawson says, when many forces are suffocating biblical preaching. Now more than ever, pastors must return to their highest calling, the divine summons to preach the Word of God. I don't know of anything else to preach but the Word of God to you. I don't know what else to teach you but God's Word. And if it has affected your heart, and if it has affected your life, then the way that you show that effect upon your life is that you begin to take that word to other people. There are certainly some things that I don't want to take to people that I've heard, you know, out of books. And I'm not against books because I'm, I'm a reader. I know a lot of you are readers. And it's an interesting thing, too, that a lot of people are nowadays, uh, the trend is getting away from, from books and now you got little things that you can put books in little devices and carry them around with you, you know. Or maybe you're just too busy for books and so you just want to do this thing, you know. Devices have taken our eyes away from what allows us to grow intellectually. But more importantly, what hinders our growth spiritually. We need to read God's Word. Because in God's Word is life. We cannot have life without the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Before Paul goes to his own death and enters into glory, he writes his son in the faith, Timothy. But this letter is not just to one person. It is a letter written to every believer in Jesus Christ. It is, a, it, it is a mandate written to every believer in Jesus Christ. Paul in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Simply preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready, be instant, in season and out of season. Are you instantly ready to preach the Word? Are you ready at any given moment to tell someone about Jesus Christ? Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. You see, we cannot separate teaching from preaching. It is necessary. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But here's the reason, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We live in that time right now. People are not wanting to endure sound doctrine, right doctrine, correct doctrine, biblical doctrine. They want... Their ears tickled, as he goes on to say, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, their own teachers. I've had people criticize coming here and say, oh man, all they do is preach the Bible. All they do is teach the Bible. Well, what do you want me to teach? You want me to sit up here and dance? I don't dance. 
I look stupid. But I'll teach you the Word of God. They will turn their ears away from the truth. You know, there's an interesting thing I read the other day. Someone has said, some people go to church to close their eyes and others to eye the close. Did you get it? Some people go to church to close their eyes and others to eye the close. There's some who close their eyes. They're not praying. They're sleeping. But then the others who have their eyes open, they're looking around to see what everybody's wearing. Got it? But who's listening? Who's listening to the Word of God? Because it says they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, stories. There are churches today that say, don't bring a Bible, we're going to just tell stories and talk a little bit about how wonderful Jesus is. And, and well, He is wonderful, isn't He? But you know, Jesus is so gentle and kind and meek and all of this. Have you ever read the book of Revelation when Jesus comes with fire coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth? That's Jesus, the same Jesus. But we put the, we put the word of God aside. We don't, we don't see the fullness of who Jesus is or why he's coming. They will turn their ears away from the truth. And be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. You have to be vigilant. Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Afflictions will come to believers. Do the work of an evangelist. Not all may have the gift of evangelism, but all are to do the work of an evangelist, which is to tell people about Jesus Christ. It is to proclaim the good news that has affected your heart and life. And then he says, fulfill your ministry. Every believer in Jesus Christ has a ministry to fulfill. Fulfill it. Fulfill it by doing that work, by enduring afflictions, by watching in all things, but by hearing the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I want to leave you with these thoughts. Bullet points, as it were. To remind you of the power of God's Word. First of all, the Word of God is living and it is powerful. The Word of God is living. It is alive. It is as much alive today as it was 2,000 years ago. The Word of God is living and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Have you ever thought about the Word of God being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart? All you would have to do, of course, is look at the Word of God and it becomes like that mirror. It shows us what we are before Christ. The other thought is this. Jesus himself was called the Word of God, the Logos of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. It is living. It is powerful. It is as a two-edged sword. It is like a two-edged scalpel, as it were, you see. 
But let me show you what it does. First of all, the Word of God connects with us and it convicts us. The Word of God connects with us and it convicts us. Because the Word of God never fails to cut. The Word of God never fails to cut because there is no blunt side to it. There is no dull side to the Word of God. The Word of God is always sharp. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Some people say, well, you know, I go to church and it's kind of boring. Well, it's not because the Word of God is dull. It might be the preacher that's dull, but it's not the Word of God. You understand? The Word of God cuts. And then understand how it cuts. Because it is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. A scalpel's, uh, a, a, a surgeon's scalpel only cuts one way. It only presents the problem. It doesn't heal the problem itself. Other uh, tools are necessary. But the Word of God in God's hand is able not only to tear down, but it is able to build up. It is able to cut to the heart, and it is able to heal the heart. It is able to cut and to reveal our sin. It is able also to take away our sin and cut it out of us. That is the power of the Word of God. But the Word of God not only connects with us and convicts us, but it also converts us. It converts us because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. We have been born again, not through corruptible things, but through the Word of God. We can come to understand being born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, as we read before, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That only comes because we hear the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the word of God not only connects with us and convicts us, but it also converts us. And then it doesn't just do that, but it also conforms us. The word of God conforms us. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, or 1 through 3. Therefore... Laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. We grow into the image of Christ by the Word of God. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, as we drink the pure milk of God's Word, we are growing thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. The Word not only connects and convicts us and converts us and conforms us, but the Word of God also counsels us. It is our best counselor. It is our greatest counselor. It is our most true counselor. Because in the Word, in the word it says in Psalm 119, verse 105, 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is our counsel. And it is our life. But the Word of God is not only living and powerful to connect with us and to convict us and to convert us and to conform us and to counsel us, but lastly, the Word of God conquers every foe. Let me say that it begins, first of all, by conquering us. The Word of God conquers us. But it also conquers every foe. 
That's why we need the Word of God in our lives. That's why we need to read the Word of God. That's why we need to study the Word of God. That's why we need to pray when we read and study the Word of God because the Word of God conquers every foe. Ephesians 6, verse 17, in that great passage dealing with the armor of God, Paul writes, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. I mention that because the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6 is the only offensive weapon that Paul mentions. All the rest are defensive. All the rest are for our defense and our protection. It is the Word of God that is the offensive weapon of the believer in Jesus Christ. There's the breastplate of righteousness, defensive. The breastplate, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. But the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is that which conquers every foe. The Word of God says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's God's Word. But it also says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, and this is our last verse here, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and notice, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. That is in the past tense. Not in the future tense. In the past tense. You have overcome the wicked one. The word of God conquers every foe. Three things I leave you with as we close this study today. The first is make a commitment. Make a commitment not to neglect the all-powerful Word of God. Make a commitment before God today not to neglect His all-powerful Word. Secondly, read the Word of God daily. I sound like a broken record, don't I? Some of you younger people may think, what's a record? Uh, That's for another time. Read the Word of God daily, for it holds our knowledge of His saving grace. Read about what Christ has done for your salvation. Read the Word of God daily. And then thirdly, pray daily. Pray daily for opportunities to declare the gospel truth and message. Let it be just a simple prayer that says, Lord, give me an opportunity today to tell someone about the love of Jesus Christ, to tell someone about the hope that lies within me because of what Christ has done for me. And even if it's one person, give me that opportunity. And then begin to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Why? Because faith cometh by hearing 
and hearing by the word of God. You can trust his word. You can trust his word in every part of your life. Hearing the word of the Lord is essential. I don't care that the world says that we've become a image or visually oriented people. We can only learn by seeing images. Some might even say, well, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrews had received a language that was very visual. Pictures, you always talk about pictures, that's true. But it was God's word written wherein the pictures were. Not the pictures themselves. It is the word that needed to be heard. Hear ye this day. Listen today and awaken to the wonders of God in His Word.